So let's, let's, uh, let's imagine for a moment, okay, we're just going to imagine for a moment that I just got done teaching a Bible study. Okay, let's hop on the magic school bus and imagine that this was super, like it was super hot. It was white hot. Everybody was freaking out. I taught on the most of important of truths. Redemption, gospel, renewal, prayer, the church, unity. We spent hours talking about it and everybody's pumped up. All these, all these significant needs. And everybody here was like slow motion high-fiving. We were throwing burritos out to everybody. People were crying. People weren't afraid to say amen. Like such amazing things were happening. And so I said all of that. I say all of this. And then at the end of it, I said this. Because of that, then do blank. Or I said, for this reason, blank. What do you think it would be? Again, all these amazing cosmic truths. And all of a sudden I said, for this reason, we must. You have any thoughts? What must we possibly conclude from such immense truths? For this reason, go move to foreign countries as a missionary. For this reason, sell all that we have and donate it to the poor. Well, Paul, our friend who we've spent many, many months with in the book of Acts, he actually has written a handful of letters to local churches, and he tells us tonight, for this reason, blank. He tells us. So much like Collective Church, he's written these letters to local churches, Galatians, all the ones we're talking about, Colossians, Philippians. But all these were addressing very specific and certain needs those churches have. But tonight, we must read the book of Ephesians differently. The book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, is different. Scholars, historians, theologians would have us listen to it and read it with a much, um, a much different sense. See, there's a reason why the Ephesian letter is called the Rolls-Royce of Paul, Pauline letters, of Paul's letters. You see, we read it differently because of how it's addressed. That being more broadly. You have to read Ephesians more broadly. Because there's no personal greeting, there's no problem solving. It was addressed to a bunch of a collective of churches within the region of Asia. Now to me, I think that's quite beautiful. So what that means is these truths have an application that every Christian, that every believer must know first and foremost. First and foremost, know this. Again, for this reason, every Christian must come to accept and passionately pursue See, if you're here, even, even if you're here and you're, you're, you're unchristian and you're curious about the Christian faith, these are the bedrock truths of what it means to follow Jesus. So read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. This is real, authoritative, non-optional, powerful Christianity. Verse 14. For all those reasons that we got on the magic school bus for, for this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. A strong inner being. For this reason, a strong inner being. As Paul prays to these churches, and if you didn't know that, we're, we're reading a prayer of his. Notice what he doesn't pray for. 
There's no prayer for an improvement of external circumstances. There's no prayer for a gain of material things. There's no prayer for suffering to cease or protection from trials or healing. Not that any of those things are bad to pray for. But this is important to realize. He says, for this reason of the gospel, I want to get your inner being strong. I want to get your gut, your inner being strong. Uh, Many, many years ago, I was a pastor um, at a church in Arizona. I was a children's pastor at a church in Arizona. And I, I've told this story once or twice before, so forgive me if you've heard it, but it, 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 very, it was very shaking, rattling for me, because as I'm sitting there on a Thursday afternoon, in comes uh, an older couple. And I must have been 22 at this time, pastor. In comes this older couple, and they say, we need to speak with an older pastor now. And I go, oh, I'm the only guy that's here. Crap. Like, I'm here. That's it. I'm the guy. And they go, oh, fine. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. And so we went and sat down, and they make their case of why they need to get a divorce because of the wife's infidelity and how she, man, it breaks my heart. She decided to to cheat on him, and, and they each made their case. And I'm just sitting there, <laughs> not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do. And I could only think of one question. So the only thing that came to my mind was one question as I'm sitting before them. And so this is what I said. No joke. I'll never forget it. They just got done telling me they're in tears. And me as some cocky pastor says, do you think your marriage would be on the rocks if you had a strong spiritual life? and they both agreed that it wouldn't be. They both said, no, if we had a strong spiritual life, our marriage would not be on the rocks. So you see what I ultimately was bringing to them is what Paul is bringing to the church as well in the book of Ephesians is the supremacy of a strong spiritual life, a fortified inner being. And we as Angelinos, right? Christian or not, we hear that and we go, yeah, Amen. A strong spiritual life, right? A strong spiritual life. Let's, let's cheers our kombucha. That sounds great. <laughs> See, Los Angeles is not timid in forming its own spirituality. But for Christians, our, spiritual, our spirituality is directly connected to the Holy Spirit. That being the power and presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. So as we spend the next few weeks, five to be exact, studying on Sundays, discussing in discipleship groups, applying in our lives, the reality and the need for the Holy Spirit, tonight's theme is is unbelievably paramount to understanding more about who he is in relation to us. So tonight is about power and it's about presence. The Holy Spirit's power and the Holy Spirit's presence. And you see, in many ways, the Holy Spirit's power can be carved down into two categories. Two categories, the external, that means his work in the nations, the stuff we read in the Bible, all the crazy stuff that happened in the book of Acts, Uh, you know, gifts, spiritual gifts, signs and wonders, all that great stuff. See, external power will be what we talk about next week. What we talk about next week will be spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about signs and wonders. We're going to be talking about tongues. 
okay? Now, basically, all that stuff does one of two things. It either freaks certain people out in here or it gets people really excited, right? Like, that's just what the Holy Spirit has an effect on when it comes to spiritual gifts. But the other category is what we need to talk about tonight. That's internal power. To come to grips with power's purpose and its place within our inner being. Essentially, the Holy Spirit's work within us or certainly the external won't make a lick of sense. So we have to be honest. I think for, if you've been a Christian for a while, we, we have to be completely honest that there's a tendency within Christianity to get all fired up about doing, about doing and going, right? Let's do this, let's do this. In the power of the Holy Spirit, send me. I'm all about it, let's do it. Let's impact our neighborhoods. Let's talk about our classrooms. Let's get in there with our friendships. Let's do stuff for Jesus in our workplace. Give me spiritual gifts but it's all too easy to forget and ignore the powerful work that must first, must first, for this reason, take place within us by the Spirit. And that's what Paul is slowing us down to realize. Verse 16, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. Now, I don't know about anybody else here, but when I read this, I'm enthralled with what he means by power. Like, are we going to be some kind of, like, elite mutants? Like, I get super stoked. Like, am I going to be able to, Holy Spirit, can I move things with my mind? Please say yes. Or, yeah, you missed it, John. We get superpowers. <laughs> or, I mean, can we count cards like Rain Man? Like, what kind of power is it, Holy Spirit? Well, here's what it means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually explain it with a story because this, cool, this is a cool understanding. But, but many, many decades ago, there was a Swedish professor who discovered, discovered a, 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 a substance, a very powerful substance, and because he discovered it, he had to name it. So guess what he does? He makes a phone call to a Greek philosopher friend of his and says, what is the Greek word for power? And he's like, oh, dunamis. Or how we'd say it is dynamite. That's how we would say it, dynamite. So essentially what we're hearing then is there is a might, virtue, explosive, bursting, eruptive forces at work within every Christian. But notice it's not our power. It's the power of the Spirit alone to strengthen our often weak inner being. And what's beautiful here is, is in the essence of Paul's prayer for power is this. He earlier prayed in Ephesians 1, he says this for the believers. Know God's great powers towards them. I want you to know God's great powers towards you. But this is what he says now in this prayer. What we just read now in Ephesians 3 goes that they might know it inwardly, personally, and experience it. That's what Paul wants all Christians to know now. Inwardly, personally, and experience this power, this dynamite power. It was famed author Oswald Chambers uh, who said, the spirit is the first power we practically experience, but the last power we come to understand. Showing us it's to be experienced far more than it is to be intellectually dominated. It's to be experienced within our inner being, the region where we know God. Our inner being, the region where we commune with God. So so if, if you don't know what the inner being is, it's as simple as saying the soul. He's talking about as the soul, the capital, the core, the truest form, the deepest thing within you. That is your inner being. So you see the body, the heart, the will, and the emotions, all of those integrated is a healthy soul. 
Make sense? All of those disconnected from one another, tearing from one another, is a result of sin. That's a disintegrated soul, a disintegrated inner being. But the soul was designed in such a way, I love this, that all of our choices, all of our thoughts, desires, and behaviors would be in perfect harmony within us and with God. Which makes sense then why Paul would say, for this reason, your soul, your inner being must be a priority. It must be a priority. It's been said before that our highest calling as human beings is to commune with God. Even Jesus said, your soul is far more valuable than the world and all of its potential gains. You see, if Christianity is just something that you do because your parents did, or if Christianity is just something you do because of tradition in your bloodline, or just something to do because you're bored, eh, let's do something on Sunday night. Church! And it has not influenced our intellect, our money, our relationships, our time, our body, our will, our emotions, and our heart, then it has not pierced one's soul. More than likely, it has just pierced one's feelings. To have a soul which isn't grounded by the power of the Holy Spirit, I mean, it's like a plastic bag in a hurricane then guess what happens to Christian and Christian alike if it's ungrounded? We will be constantly vulnerable to people's opinions or circumstances. An ungrounded soul means we are constantly thrown back and forth by people's opinions or circumstances, right? It's as Pastor John Ortberg, who I love, said in his book, Soul Keeping, if your soul is healthy, no external circumstance can destroy your life. If your soul is unhealthy, No external circumstance can redeem your life. That's why Paul, instead of praying for external circumstances to halt, he prays uh, for a Holy Spirit-empowered inner being which can face any external circumstance. Rather than just remove this, remove that, Paul's like, no, 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 no. I want to get your soul strengthened. So this seems like a good moment to stop and at least ask, as a pastor at this church and as a friend, uh, how is your soul? What is the condition of your soul? Your inner being? I mean, if you don't know, I think that's actually probably pretty telling as well. I don't know. Is it running wild in its own strength? Is it withered? Is it flourishing? Is it fearful? I would say tonight for us to understand, if you'd say, no, my soul is in pieces, I'm disintegrated, I'm all over the place, this is tearing from this, I would say the first step to a thriving soul would be acknowledge our neediness. That's the first step to desiring or wanting or having a thriving soul, soul saying, I'm absolutely desperate for you, Holy Spirit. And I would actually say this is why, even though it may not seem that way, this is why it is good for us people, for us Christians, to be humiliated, to be embarrassed, to be broken, to be distraught, to be overwhelmed, to be exhausted. When that happens, we can finally see and speak out that, you know, what we really are. Oh, this is too much. I found my limitation. That is a good thing. So when I sit with people as a pastor and they are struggling and they are complaining and they are frustrated, it's always connected to their inner being. 
It's one of the it's a reason why one of the first questions I have now asked, even from that marriage counseling from so many years ago, I ask, how are you in Jesus? If you sat with me, hopefully I've asked the question at one point or another, how are you in Jesus? How is your soul? So allow me as a pastor to say this. If you guys don't know this, pastors are in the soul business. That is what we do. A pastor's work is to exhort and encourage the health and vitality of a man or a woman's soul. So as leaders, this is why we constantly push, which may drive our church nuts. But we will not be compromising in what we will be pushing from the pulpit all the time. All the time. That being prayer. We will push prayer all the time. For an example, tonight, Pastor Lorenz has already told you, from like 15 minutes after this gathering, we're going in the coffee house and we're praying. We don't care if there's four of you or 40 of you, we need to pray. The first step towards a thriving soul is to acknowledge our neediness. Neediness, what we're supposed to do in that moment is pray. I encourage you to be there tonight. It's an invitation to you all. As pastors, we're constantly, constantly encouraging financial giving. Is that so that we get rich? Oh, suckers. No. Not at all. Are you kidding me? That's so our hearts are not in bondage to greed. As pastors, we're constantly encouraging and highlighting discipleship. So our hearts are not isolated and alone. I mean, notice what Paul adds in verse 18. Look at this screen. It should be up there. Or if not, you can check your Bibles. He says that we may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints. Right? Is it up there? With all of the saints. What does that mean? Well, I'll explain it this way. The isolated, disengaged Christian can indeed know something of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course. But, 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 and but, they will never experience it how it's supposed to be experienced, that being together. One of the primal safeguards for the soul is one another, is the saints, it's the church. It's amazing to hear about people who constantly say that the church is more of a crutch for people's priority of the spiritual life, that they use it as a spiritual adrenaline shot. But what we see in Scripture is that the church, the saints, this one together as one of the primary safeguards that we stay on the straight and narrow. If I could just even be really practical for a moment, um, I know people have, here, have issues with even what we talk about when we talk about from the pulpit about mission membership. Other people don't even care, whatever. Here's one of the main reasons that we offer mission membership, safeguarding yours and mine inner being. Safeguarding yours and mine inner being. Men and women going on record by saying, hold me to the priority of fostering my own soul. The most meaningful thing, and please believe me when I say this and hear me when I say this about the church, the mo- one of the most meaningful things we as saints can offer the church is the healthiest version of ourself. It almost sounds selfish the way you say it. it sounds weird, but it's true. The, the, the greatest gifts we can give the church is the healthiest version of ourself, an empowered soul which is constantly expressing its desperation for the Holy Spirit. So with that, allow me to ask this as we're talking about the church, and I think it pertains to this right now. If everybody, everyone in the church was exactly like you, your soul health, your engagement, your need for one another, your financial worshipful giving, 
Does your disciple-making efforts, your hospitality, your discipline of rest and Sabbath, your dependence on the Holy Spirit, what would this church look like? I'm hearing people laugh. (laughs) What would it look like if this church was made up of every, just a bunch of Daves, a bunch of Ethans, a bunch of Lisas? What would we look like? If it was made up of a bunch of Casey's, would be super handsome. Like one of the most handsome churches of all time. It's like, holy smokes, that is a good-looking church. Like, go there. It's handsome. If our inner being is not a priority, if our soul is not a priority, if it takes a back seat, then there is little to no room to complain or to grow angry about a lack of peace, about problems in one relationships, about losing the temptation battles, or about frustrations with the church, and so on. Verse 17. Let's move on from there. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Wait, wait, wait a minute, a minute. Christians, this is confusing. This should be confusing. Everybody rip that page out. This should be confusing, right? I thought Christ was already dwelling in my heart when I accepted Jesus, 1998. I did the whole sinner's prayer thing. I started bawling. I jumped in a pool, got baptized, and then I burned all my secular CDs. <laughs> God forgive me. <laughs> That was the stupidest thing I could have done. Right? Anybody else have those type of experiences? Later, Metallica. (laughs) How can we be strengthened by the Holy Spirit but not have Christ within us? It seems backwards. It seems untrue. What is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is this. It is a comprehension of presence. A comprehension of presence, an awareness of his presence, living from that presence. When we read, when it refers to like Christ presently dwelling in us, every time you're going to be able to see that in the New Testament, that means by the Spirit. Christ is dwelling in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. There's many verses that show that. We don't have time to get into the study of that. If you want those type of verses, come ask me after. Ultimately, it's this. If Christ is real to you, it's because of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So God, I want to make sure this is clear. We're going to get a little theologically practical for a moment, but it'll make sense as we get closer to the end. God is present in two different ways. There's two types of presence, I would say. One, it would be omnipresence. This is that one where like, God is so big and so massive. He's here and he's in Jupiter and he's walking the the, the sun. Like, it's just crazy. God is everywhere. It's so big and it's so expansive that it's easy just to sort of let it pass us by, right? That's just so massive, God's omnipresence. But, 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 there's a second kind of presence in the Bible that Scripture speaks of. And that's what theologians would call uh, manifest presence. That's when the Spirit reveals His presence so tangibly that Christ's glory is experienced, it is felt. I know that's a freaky word. I know experience is a freaky word. Basically, whenever you talk about the Holy Spirit, we, you freak all sorts of people out. You say the word supernatural, you say visitation, everybody's like, I'm out. 
When I talk about it being experienced or it is felt, that is the manifest presence or manifest presence of the Holy Spirit in the individual and in the church. And this, like a fire, consumes, when that happens, consumes anything in our life that may be in that moment small or fearful or hiding or timid or is worried about what others think. It means it's all consuming which makes sense as you read about the presence of God within the Old Testament. I don't know if you guys have done this, but it's one of my favorite topics to really study and dive into. If you look at the presence of God in the Old Testament, it's one of fire. Oh, You don't have to advertise fire. Nobody has to advertise fire, right? If there's a fire, it has everybody's attention. Same with God's presence. So I'm going to do very quickly a little walk down just to show you guys. But if you know anything about the, about the Bible, you might remember this. If not, I'll fill you in. But from Moses in, Genesis, in, the, in the early book of Genesis, who envisioned the smoking furnace of Genesis 15, Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, the fire that fell consumed Elijah's altar with the prophets of Baal, the pillar of fire that led the Israelites by name, or when Solomon's temple was finally consecrated and set up, the flood of fire that fell, the fire that lit up on Mount Sinai as Moses receiving the law of God. And God has chosen over and over and over to expose himself as blazing, purifying, warm, awe, destructive fire. That is exciting. That is crazy. That is beautiful. Now, what's important for us to know, why I would encourage us to know that, is because of Acts chapter 2. Jesus was executed, he was buried, arose from the dead, punched the green reaper in the face, and before he ascends to heaven, you know what he does? He tells the holy, or he tells his disciples, I mean, they're like, let's get out, let's, let's go, let's do this. And he's like, no, no, chill. Wait. Why? For the Holy Spirit to come. I know you want to go do all this good, it sounds awesome. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, you remember what happened? What happened? The Holy Spirit was poured out, and what did we see? What did they see? I didn't see it. What did they see? Tongues of fire. Do you know what that means? Do you have any idea what that means? The same fire that was a glow in the Old Testament now resides in you and in me. And now resides in you and in me. There's this, anybody remember Batman Returns, the Tim Burton one? Remember that? It's, it's one of my favorites. But I loved it. <laughs> I loved it because, man, I'm having mic issues. Forgive me if I keep touching it. But I love it. I just drew attention to it. Crap. I'm going to hear about that from Lorenzo. But I love it. Here's why. You remember, the peng- you remember Penguin? There's a point where Penguin is about to be super destructive and set fires and do all these explosions. And does anybody remember what he screamed right before he did it? Probosco? You don't remember that? Well, that's shocking. This is what he screams. Burn, baby, Burn. And Danny DeVito screams it. And I, as like a nine-year-old little boy, was just like, that is the coolest thing you could say of all time. I was like sitting there in front of the TV going, that's it for me. And it became it for me. Meaning, I said it all the time that I had to get, I got in a lot of trouble with teachers. I started saying burn, baby, burn all the time with my parents and getting in trouble. If I was leaving grandma's house, Bye, sweetie, I love you. Burn, baby, burn. I did it every time. I signed off my school council lecture for me to try to win like a seat as treasurer. I screamed at the whole school, burn, baby, burn. And I remember the principal being like, like, what's happening? 
wildly inappropriate for a 10-year-old to scream, burn, baby, burn at people. It seems appropriate here. I tell all of that just to get me to the next transition of, of this. It was such a stupid story. But listen to this. As Danish philosopher Kierkegaard said so powerfully, Christianity is fire-setting. A Christian is a person set on fire. Burn, baby, burn. And one more to really light it up. Whatever. (laughs) Scottish minister James Stewart Stewart, God bless his parents, said, when all is said and done, the supreme need is the same a 20th century as in the first. What is that supreme need? Mankind on fire for Christ. I beg you, do not commit the fearful blunder of dampening down the flame. When a soul comprehends this fire, guess what happens? When a soul understands its reality with this fire, guess what happens? Truth becomes relevant. Theology becomes experience. That means there's a relevancy, excuse me, to how then we make choices and live our lives. Paul isn't saying everywhere, Christ is everywhere and even dwelling in your hearts. Like in passing out little precious moments dolls. That's not, what, that's not what's happening right here, Paul is saying. Paul says something so much more dangerous when he says this. This is dangerous. Paul's referring to an influential, experiential enlargement of what is already known. He wants us to, to, to pursue his presence and to be strengthened by the Spirit so that the love of Jesus, get this, might exert a progressively greater and more intense influence over what? Our mind, our will, our emotions, our heart, and our body. We also could just say totally consumed by the fiery presence of the Holy Spirit. We can so easily fall into the trap and it's so easy for us to do this, not only as majority of us millennials, but in our American cultural societal settings and even as Angelinos, it's so easy for us to fall into the trap of external spiritual activities. Well, I'll go wherever, I'm just going to find a spiritual presence. So I'm going to sign up for 18,000 different parachurch ministries I'm going to church hop like crazy until I keep getting that high, that spiritual high, those mountaintop moments. Like somehow by doing this, we can, we for, well, first we forget that we have the presence of God, and then somehow we think by doing that that we can control power, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Constantly trying to tweak this situation just right that the Holy Spirit and everybody's be like, man, that was, that was so great. As a pastor, I will confess now that is a constant temptation for me. That if I just put the right pair of words together, somebody needs to be like, Spirit of God is on that man. Mm, Because he said that joke. Wow. Because burn, baby, burn. The Holy Spirit is on him. Wow. That's great. But it's crazy because if we search these spiritual experiences, these moments, and they don't happen, or we pray for these incredible things and they don't happen, guess what we do? We get frustrated with the Holy Spirit. That should expose to us Christians right then and there that if we pray for something and it doesn't happen, that prayer did not come from a right and pure spot of our soul. If we're frustrated and then that didn't get answered, that was not a pure-hearted, fortified inner being prayer. 
We get frustrated. Why are you doing this this way, God? I held up my end of the bargain. It's crazy. As culture and society becomes increasingly um, post-Christian, there are some who think, there are Christians who think, if God would just display his power, if God would just display his presence, if God would just reignite this fire, if God would just show up and do something big, then the church would go nuts. If fire fell down right here, yeah, the, yeah, let's all go. Let's, let's do it. Again, I confess that I have judged God that way as well. If God would just do this, then things will get lit. But that's our Christian culture taking a blade and slicing right in half presence and power. Something we can never do. Those two cannot be apart. Pursuing power over presence of the Holy Spirit is wanting results and not a relationship. A display of power, an emotional high, is not always enough to draw a person to worship. Paul knows that, and Paul finishes our verses by saying this. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So there's a, there's a story in the New Testament. It's one of the saddest stories to read about a miracle, a power of what Jesus did you know, by the Holy Spirit. Essentially, he shows up and he finds a man on the shore and he is wrecked. He is broken, he's distraught, he's unbelievably self-destructive, he is killing himself in so many ways. And Jesus shows up and guess what he does? Oh, he beautifully and wonderfully and powerfully heals him. It's amazing. But the townsfolk people, they show up, they saw what Jesus had done, they saw the power, it's super evident, and guess what they do? Get out of here. Jesus, go now. Jesus, get in your boat and skedaddle. They pleaded with Jesus to leave. However, the, or the, 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 the healed man, excuse me, the healed man begged to be with Jesus. So I find these two responses tonight very instructive. The townspeople had seen power and they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus to them was dangerous, uncontrollable, and a threat to their way of life. They wanted to stay the way they, are. they were. They were complacent. This is power over presence. The healed man had a very different reaction, which brought him with the desire to be near and to worship because he had seen not only the Spirit's power, but what else has he noticed? He also saw Christ's love. He saw who Christ was. That's presence with power. Being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath what is the breath? You guys ever thought about it before? I believe what Paul is sort of journaling in this prayer about, what I believe that means, it's the absolute broad way Christ loves people. Think about this. This is true. I mean, Christ loves both the self-destructive man and the fearful townsfolk, right? Christ loves both the vegan and the meat eater. You know, and he loves Dodgers and the Astros. He loves Jewish and Gentile. He loves 
Republicans, he loves Democrats. I mean, this is how broad his love is. Christ loves so deeply and so passionately every victim who was shot at the Vegas shooting just as much as he loves the Vegas shooter. That, that doesn't compute. We need strength to comprehend this type of love. That does not compute. That's beyond our understanding. We need the spirits to help it. There's help to understand it. Christ's love is long enough, it says, to last for eternity, to outrun our sin. Christ's love is too high. Too high to the places he wants to take us from glory to glory. Christ's love is deep enough so that we will spend an infinity trying to personally understand it. And all of this empowering, all of this fiery presence, all of this passion to come back to the single greatest mystery and gift the universe could ever offer. That being simply the love of Jesus Christ. Again, it's when we come complacent like the townsfolk who ask Jesus to leave unwanting his presence, that repels the manifest presence of God. Oh, I just wanted, to, I just wanted something my way. I wanted it done my way. I didn't want the presence. I just want power. I don't need Jesus to be around. That repels the manifest presence of God. You see, what we learn from Scripture is that there are things that which attract the manifest presence of God. So I'm going to end with this. And this could possibly, and I'll just say it, freak some people out. But here's what's attractive to the Spirit, to the manifest presence of the Spirit, and this is what I'm inviting us to tonight. Okay? The first is worship. This is attractive to the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. This is attractive, but it's worship in the sense that it's true worship. It's not passive mumbling. It's not just um, sitting there very complacently. It's understanding with all of our external circumstances that worship is the one true response to the power and presence of the living God. Amen? So what I encourage us to do is understand that the Spirit, that the God of the Bible loves to be sung to. He loves singing. He loves it. So let's risk, like we talked about last, last week, in our worship. So when we sing, we don't just sing about him, we sing to him. We gotta get churches away from singing about God and singing to God. Then second, Psalm 51 says this. This is, see this in light of everything we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. But Psalm 51, David is unbelievably broken. He cries out, create in me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your what? Your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. The manifest presence is attracted to when we pursue holiness. That means we respond to conviction. That means there's something that we're hiding, we're bottling, whatever it is. It's in our time of response where we go, I need to straight up repent of this. I need to sit with this, understand what it's done, understand what it is, and then ask for forgiveness. When that's done, and we know the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of his love for us, then I would encourage you to then come receive communion. Christians, this is for you. Come take the double stack cups, the bottom of the bread, the top of the drink, okay? And that is for you to realize the, very, the unbelievably huge cost of his love. You want proof of Christ's love? It's right there, okay? And then lastly, I want us to risk in prayer. I want us to be specific, and I want us to risk in prayer. This entire thing was a prayer. How incredible is that? Do we pray enough like that? I know I don't always pray like this. Oh, God, remove this. I, like, I, I need this type of prayer in my life.
God, would you strengthen this in me that I would understand the, 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 the unbelievable vastness of your love? So I want us to risk in prayer. Look at this. Look at verse 20. And then again, we're closing with this. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than we are all, than we are to ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Did you guys get that? Now to him who is able to do far more, far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Do you know what that means? It's more than just, oh, God's a mind reader. No. It means his ability to provide for us must not be measured by the limits of our prayers. Well, Christ is only going to give to us by the power of his Holy Spirit what we ask for. No. Meaning he's able to do more than we can ask or think. His expectations are higher than our own. Oh, he is more eager to give than we are to ask. Tonight, receive prayer. There's going to be people up against that wall, up against that wall. They're going to be wearing a lanyard. They want to pray for you. Tonight, risk in the way you respond. Worship. Let's, let's pray for, for God's presence, not just to seek his power. God, do something. No, no. God, we want more of you. You, you, you. We want to become more aware of you. You, you, you. Okay? If you've never sought prayer, I invite you to the people on the back wall. If you've never lifted your arms, surrender and worship, I invite you to do that tonight. And Christians, if you've never taken communion tonight, you are invited. God is at work amongst us. Let us position ourselves to receive what he has for us tonight. Let's pray.